Mighty God, we come before you as we have been responsive to your word, as we've heard it read, as we sing, as we've heard it read, as we sing, as we confess it, as we sing, and have this response to it, Lord, as if having a conversation with you. So we come now to the portion of our service, Lord, in which we look to your word, to be instructed by it, to receive it. We pray that you would aid us in the hearing of the word being preached, and we pray for the unction of the Spirit to be present. We ask that you would minister to us through your word, that as we look at Abram and his going down into Egypt, that we would learn thereby things that we ought not to do, and yet know that you are still with us. We pray that you would aid us by the power of the Holy Spirit in these things, and we so ask it all in Christ's name. Amen. Let's look at Genesis chapter 12, verses 10 through 20. Now, there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there, for the famine was severe in the land. And it came to pass, when he was close to entering Egypt, that he said to Sarai, his wife, Indeed, I know that you are a woman of beautiful countenance. Therefore, it will happen when the Egyptians see you that they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say you are my sister, that it may be well with me for your sake, and that I may live because of you. So it was when Abram came to Egypt, and the Egyptians saw the woman, that she was very beautiful. The princes of Pharaoh also saw her and commended her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. He treated Abram well for her sake. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? I might have taken her as my wife. Now therefore... Here is your wife. Take her and go your way. So Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Now, this is actually a pattern for the future. God will often send famines. The Egyptians will afflict God's people. God will plague the Egyptians. The Egyptians will let them go with great wealth. They will return to the land by stages in the wilderness, and they'll finally arrive back in the land where they worship the Lord. This is exactly what Abram is going through. But he's threatened. And the promise of famine, the promise seems threatened as a result of the famine. He places Sarai in danger, and God must deliver her. The text yells quite loud at the reader. Moses is trying to make a point that man's sinful inventions are not the ways of God. Here we find the divine preservation of the family, as is a common theme throughout the book of Genesis. And the purity of Sarai for the sake of the promise and the blessing that's ultimately going to come. 
God must work on behalf of his people. And I think that Moses is pointing out that God is a, a covenant-keeping God even when the Israelites, who will be reading this particular text that Moses is penning, the Israelites will become unfaithful. But God is covenant-keeping irregardless. Let's look and see how the text is laid out. First, there's the famine and the sojourn in verse 10. There was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there, for the famine was severe. Now, it is not mentioned why there was a famine. But since we know that God oversees and controls all things, and that he is sovereign over everything, we know that it was for a purpose, maybe for a time of testing. Will Abram listen to me? We find many other narratives dealing with God's use of the plagues and the famines for trials, for his people. They're often used in that particular manner. The word dwell, he goes to dwell in that land, is sojourn, which is a temporary stay. So Abram was thinking that he would go down there. He still trusted the promise, so to speak. While there was a famine, he was going to go down to Egypt and temporarily hang out there to make sure everything is okay, so that, as the text says, and we'll see, that he plans to secure his life. God promised to be something. I have to make sure that I live. If I don't live, there's going to be a problem because then the promise of God will be of no effect. So I have to do something to make sure I stay alive. And it came to pass, when he was close to entering Egypt, that he said to Sarai, his wife, Indeed, I know that you're a woman of beautiful countenance. So the Egyptians are going to see you, and as a result, they're going to kill me so that they can take you. So lie... Or, just don't tell the whole truth. And then, it will be well with me for your sake. And that I might live because of you. So, Abram schemes to save his own life. That's what he did. And the phrase in verse 13, that it may be well with me, is more literally, it will be pleasing. This will be a very good thing if we do it. And this particular phrase in and of itself often has a direct link to the way that God blesses his people and works among his people. It's a pleasing thing when God fights for his people. But in this case, Abram is fighting for himself. And it's pleasing that this scheme come to pass so that his life can be saved. Sarai was his half-sister, so he wasn't going to tell the whole truth to the Egyptians so that his conscience would be covered, nonetheless, because she really is my sister, but I'm just not going to tell you the whole truth about it. The Egyptians, though, they would have thought differently. If he said that she was his sister, they would have believed that Sarai was his sister. Not his half-sister, not his wife, but just his sister. He was so overwhelmed with the preservation of his life, of his own life, wasn't even thinking of her, that he would be responsible alone to fulfill the divine promise that he deceives and he lies to sustain his life. But we'll see that God's plan is not going to be propagated by evil thoughts and evil desires. Sarai is taken by the Egyptians. And as a result of being taken, Abram is rewarded by the Egyptians. He's paid for. Abram came into Egypt... The Egyptians saw her. She was very beautiful. They took her. And then Pharaoh blessed Abram with sheep 
and with oxen and male donkeys, servants, all sorts of things. Now, the Egyptians find Sarai beautiful. She is a 65-year-old woman, but she has not had any children, and she was not dark-skinned as the Egyptians, so she was different. She was brought into Pharaoh's harem, and Abram is given a great reward for selling, basically, his wife to Pharaoh. He loses Sarai to the gain of wealth. And as a result, God immediately begins his work on behalf of his chosen people, not simply his chosen servant, Abram, but his chosen people, which includes his wife. But the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai. Moses wants you to get that point. Not because of what Abram did, but because of Sarai, Abram's wife. God wastes no time in cursing Pharaoh's house. Basically, it's almost as if it's physical contact by the hand of God. God's hand falls upon Pharaoh's house with great plague. And great here is an intensive word. It's not simply a regular plague, but a great one. God said, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. Now, Pharaoh didn't even know what he was doing. He didn't know, but God knew. And God never excuses ignorance. As a matter of fact, the psalmist says in 105 verses 14 and 15, Yes, he rebuked kings, for their sakes, that is his people, saying, Do not touch my anointed ones and do my prophets no harm. So God is going to come and fight on behalf of his people. And then, as a result, Abram is rebuked. But he's not rebuked by God. He's rebuked by Pharaoh. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? I might have taken her as my wife. Now, therefore, here is your wife. Take her and go your way. The God of Egypt can never contend with the God of Abram. Now, in some way, and the text doesn't tell us, in some way, whether by logic, whether by divine intervention, Pharaoh knows God is responsible for what is going on in his house, and that Sarai is Abram's wife. Now, we have no mention of the text exactly how this is. Later, we're going to find out like father, like son, with Isaac, and that Abimelech is going to have a dream, and God is going to divinely warn him in that dream. And that might have been the case here, but the text doesn't tell us, because it's not really the point of the text. Pharaoh calls forth Abram and rebukes him for his sin. What is this you have done? Why did you lie to me? And as a result, he exiles him. So Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. The take her and go is paralleled by 12.1 to go out and get out from your father's house, the way that this chapter is actually set up. First, it was a blessing, but here, it's an expulsion. It's shameful. It's the same thing that God did to Adam and Eve out of the garden. Because you have sinned, get out from among me. 
out of my presence. Pharaoh basically banishes them from Egypt. And the very foes who Abram was cautious of which would take care of his life, actually. He leads them out with an army. He guards him out of Egypt. Why does he do that? Why does Pharaoh send his, his army to surround Abram and his servants and his people and send them out of Egypt with an army? Well, lest he befall danger from the hands of this very angry God who's already cursed him, he sends out Abram and his family protected so that the Egyptians wouldn't kill him on the way out. And he sends them on their way with all that he had already given him. And Abram leaves. Now, that's the way that the text is laid out. Taking the point from this text is relatively easy in overseeing what is going on. And I'm going to use, because Abram was one of the elect of God, one of his chosen servants, the right man for the job, as we talked about last week, who actually went out and proselytized people. I'm going to use the word Christians. Christians often forget God's word, just as Abram did. Abram forgot what God had said. He forgot. He didn't really think that God was going to fight for him in that way, and he misuses the word. What did he have to fear in reality if his faith was as truly strong as it was in the beginning? Rather than trusting God, he trusted in his own devices, in his own schemes, because God needs a little help. God isn't going to bring it to pass in and of himself. I'm going to have to make sure that I do my part as well. Look where forgetting God's word or forgetting God's will, for that matter, took Abram. He lied. He has his wife taken from him. And then he receives a rebuke by a pagan, no less, which was rightly deserved. And when people forget what the word of God says, they tend to fall into grave error, just as Abram did. They aren't trusting in what God says anymore, but what they think seems best. And when people forget God's word, the foundations of their faith will be shaken. They'll lose trust in God. They will fall into error. They will fall into doubt. And when doubt takes hold of people, they become helplessly anxious when all along, because of a weak memory, they simply forget that Christ, that God, is there with them, right beside them, even in the midst of a famine. When Christians forget God's word, they tend to justify their sin. Abram justified his actions of lying because he lost trust. He forgot what God had said concerning him in chapter 12 in the beginning, that he would be a blessing, that he would be great, and that God would be the one to do it. So he decided to concoct a plan on his own, by his own power, by something that he saw fit to rescue himself. And this scheming the scheming in and of itself calls into question God's power. It calls into question God's wisdom. It calls into question God's sovereignty. It calls into question God being God. Whenever people make plans, they always seem to think they have it planned out perfectly. And James, 
in chapter 4, verses 13 to 17, says that the plans that people make are futile without God's blessing. They're impotent. They're actually unnecessary. Because only that which God will do will come to pass, because Christians are to remember that God's will stands, not some concoction of their own planning. Which is why James tells us, if you want to plan out another day, then say, as the Lord wills. If the Lord wills such and such, then. Abram said, I will be deceptive, because I need to find my way out of the situation, because I, if I don't get myself out of it, who's going to get me out? And that is the father of our faith. People justify themselves to be able to do what they want because they want to do it at their own convenience and not in God's time. Famines are difficult. No food, that's difficult. No water, that's difficult. But people must wait and see what God is going to do because God has everything under control. Cut Abraham some slack here, right? I mean, come on, it was a famine. His motives were good. He wanted to preserve his life. It's not a bad thing. It's honoring the fifth commandment. Sixth commandment. Actually, a little of both. Honoring his person. Honoring his life. Well, people can have good motives and still sin. It would have been far better for Abram to suffer the worst affliction possible than to commit the least sin because he forgot God's word. Because a half-truth is a whole lie. And just because he didn't tell all of the truth, he still lied. Sin and evil don't bring about good. He tried to get out of the situation of his own efforts, and that was characterized by human deception, not by resting on the will of God. And when people do this, when Christians follow suit with Abram, when they do that, they will be shamed by the hand of God in some way or another. What goes around comes around. That cliche is somewhat true. Abram was shamed and he was scorned by the world. God didn't even have to come down and tell him anything. That would have been most likely the most humiliating feeling, knowing that God cursed these people and the very cursed people themselves rebuked him for not being righteous and forgetting God's word. Many times, Christ will use the world to judge the church because the church forgets about their responsibility to his word and to his will. And Christians are often shamed by the world when they act unbecoming before them. Abram was ashamed. He had a long time to think about it as well, all the way back to Canaan, to ponder it. And his response is recorded by Moses in the text. Look at your text. Look and see what it is that he responded with. What did he say? Nothing. There's nothing there. His response was not recorded in the text. Because he didn't say anything. Because he was ashamed. Hebrews 11.16 says, But now they desire a better that is a heavenly country. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Let it be that for no Christian at any time that God would be ashamed to be called their God. Abram stood before Pharaoh and he was 
ashamed for what he did. And when Christians forget God's word, they are ultimately forgetting Christ himself, who is the living word. Abraham forgot God. John 1.1, 1, 1, Jesus Christ is the living word. Christ is the word. Christ should be hidden in our heart. Christ should be set in our minds and in our souls. And as a result, we hide him there. And as a result of hiding him there, we don't sin against God. If Abram had done that, as the psalmist says in 119.11, your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. If he had recalled and not done anything by deceptive means, he would have been blessed and God would have rescued him from the famine and he would have provided a means for him and he would have told him what to do. There is never an excuse to forget God's word. There is never an excuse to forget Christ in that way. People always have excuses. Jobs and hobbies and families and friends. Everything takes up too much of their time. Everything takes, They have no time to ponder the word and the cares of, of the world crouch in on them. And as a result, they don't have any armor to defend themselves when the time comes to defend themselves. Why didn't Abram do that? Why don't we see supplication made to God in the midst of his sin? Well, when people sin, they forget. They try to fix things in and of themselves. They blind themselves to the truth and they fall into the grievous error. They don't see what they're doing. And Christians are sometimes so blinded by the world or the flesh or the devil or some of those things that their actions become anti-Christian for all intents and purposes. And they scheme and they plot and they try to get themselves out of the situations when all along Christ knows that he'll have to come down and rescue them again. But God is a, is a rescuing God. He does do that. But he also wants us to be reminded, as he says through his prophets, thus says the Lord, cursed is the one who trusts in man and depends on his flesh for his strength and whose heart turns away from the Lord. Every time Christians do something that turns away from God, that turns away from his word, they are trusting on their own flesh. Abram forgot God. And Christians often forget him in the same way. How do we then take that idea and apply it to our own situation right now? Well, as Christians, we have to fully trust Christ in all things, even the things of the world, our vocations, our families, our cars, moves from one state to another, everything. We place in his hand. What can he do for us? We don't only trust Christ to die for us and to save us, but in everything. We trust him in his death and resurrection, don't we? We set our salvation as good Calvinists. We set it on him, believing the doctrines of grace. But we should trust him because he can be trusted in everything and in all places. People today don't generally trust. They're generally skeptical, especially not with, without some proofs. But not only do we have proofs, but we actually have, as we're holding, the promises themselves. It's a life of faith. Faith is trust in its most simple form. Mistrust questions God's wisdom power, and sovereignty. But trust, in doing that, we rely 
on his promises. And Christ calls us blessed if we believe on him in that way, which is synonymous with placing our trust in him and everything. Think about it. You get into your cars and you put your seat belts on. It's almost as though it's second nature. You don't even have to think about it because you're trusting in the seat belt in case you get into an accident to save you. It feels just wrong to get into the car and not click your seatbelt in. I, I was going to ride in the parking lot the other day, just from one spot to another, and I got in the car and I just didn't feel right not having my seatbelt on. It's just something I had to have on from one place to another because I trust it so. And the apostles, in John chapter 20 and verse 29, when they see the risen Christ, have a problem, some of them, with trust, even with seeing things with their own eyes. Thomas, you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. So we, we trust even though we haven't seen. We don't tangibly touch or feel him like we do a seatbelt in a car, but we're called blessed to believe. Blessed if we trust We become so burdened with the world and with the anxiety about our awful situations that our trust turns into mistrust and we try to fix things on our own power. We try to rescue ourselves out of the situations and you know what happens when we do that. The situation becomes worse. Christ, though, is our redeemer, our rescuer. And he rescues us in big things and he rescues us in small things. We should, in everything... Trust him. He is the redeemer. He is the one who saves. He is the one who rescues. I love 1 Peter 1.8. Whom, having not seen, you love. Whom, having not seen, you love. The true Christian's love to the unseen Christ is based on his promises based on his word, based on what we understand about him. How is it that we can worship or love or trust in a God that we don't know? And that's the sad part about what Abram did. He knew. God had told him specifically. And he didn't trust him. The famine at that point was bigger than God was. But no matter how hard things get, the Christian has to follow Christ in trust. And it's not for people to give up because things get bad. If that's the case, we shall all give up now because we are promised that in this life we will have tribulation. And through tribulations we shall enter the kingdom of God. This is a promise. You always find those little books of all the promises of God. They often leave things like this out. John 16, 33. In the world you will have tribulation. But it's good that it doesn't end there. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. The problem is that we often think one-dimensionally. We often think in this linear one-dimension fashion. Oh, things are going bad. Let me then provide an answer to that tribulation. Let me fix it. But God might have other things in mind in bringing that tribulation. Maybe he's sanctifying you in a certain way that only in that tribulation you will be sanctified. Job could only be sanctified in his tribulation in that way. That was the perfect means for God's sanctification for him. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Maybe the Egyptians are going to take my life. So I better prepare myself and I better come up with a plan quick. 
But why do you think Jesus tells us not to worry about tomorrow? He says in Matthew 6.34, Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. We should never be swayed by the tumultuous surroundings that go about us. We should always be like the center of the tornado. Some of you who are not familiar with hearing about maybe water spouts or tornadoes or things of that nature, sometimes we have those along the ocean. In the middle of those water spouts and tornadoes, the air is perfectly still. Around, it's flying with all sorts of debris and speed and destruction, but right in the middle there, there's nothing at all. There's no movement. You can stand in the middle of it and not be affected at all. Let it never be that the Christian is swayed because they sin and forget God's word. Christ is trustworthy, not simply because of what he has done for us, but because he is in and of himself trustworthy. It's like the children. The children trust their parents until they go off and begin to scheme on their own. God's anointed one for us will take care of us. He will oversee our lives. He died for us. Don't you think that he would see all the little things through as well? Do we have a lack of trust in Christ? Do we believe his promises? Do we really heed his words? Who or what could we possibly place to trust in place of Christ? The Israelites, in reading what Moses had penned here, would become unfaithful many times. Moses would point them to go read this passage again. Look at what happens to people when they trust themselves. If we're Christian, Christ is the all-powerful, sovereign God of the universe, who is completely able in everything to be trusted. Sometimes the school of trusting is hard, but thank God we have such a great teacher who cares about us and is able to teach us perfectly how to deal with these situations. A final word. This is a final word mostly of comfort. God does not deal with us according to our sin, but according to his grace in Christ. Now, how does that fit? Here's a bronze who goes down into Egypt, imagine if God said, fine, go do your own thing, I'll let you go down into Egypt, your life is in your own hands. That would have been the end. Imagine if God had simply judged Abram at that point. The promises and the blessings would be of no account. There would be no salvation. There would be no finality to God's plan. There would be utter confusion from beginning to end and there would be no hope of salvation if God had allowed Abram to take matters into his own hands and leave them there. God's elect, on the other hand, in spite of themselves, have Christ working for them. Romans chapter 8, 31 and 32. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And the all things are the things of the previous verse. From justification to sanctification to glorification, everything that is worked up in that. Even when you, 
lie and cheat and covet, even when you steal, God is working for you to sanctify you. Now, there's a balance. There's a balance. And listen to this. Even though I just said that, listen to this. Find me one example in all of the Bible where one of God's elect sinned against him, then was rebuked by God, or in some way chastised and changed, and then, after so great a sin, commit the same sin again. You'll never find it. You'll never see Abram do what he did in that situation again. You will never see David commit again after the Bathsheba incident. You will never see again any of God's people. You'll never see Peter... After denying Christ, deny him again. You'll never see it. That should teach us a lesson. Abram will not deceive the king again. Would you? God's elect have covenant promises to stand on. And I'll just read you these. Because you want to be set and standing and satisfied in what God says for you in everything, and that really and truly believe He is working on your behalf. Listen to just some of these scriptures. Genesis 17:7, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. 2 Samuel 23:5, Yet He has made with me an everlasting covenant ordered in all things and secure. Isaiah 55, 3. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. Jeremiah 32, 40. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from doing them good. Hebrews 13, 20 to 21. Now may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do His will, working in you what is well-pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. We stand on the reality that God is working for us. God deals with us according to His grace, and He rescues us from our sin. Psalm 19, verses 12 and 13 says, Who can understand His errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Imagine if a booming voice appeared every time we did something wrong. Every time we displeased God. The booming voice would never cease. But God is tender-hearted towards His people. He is long-suffering with their faults. He does not deal with them according to their sins, but He deals with them according to the grace that they have through the blood of Christ. He's long-suffering, and he cleanses them through the power of the Spirit by washing them with the blood of Christ. And sometimes God scrubs very hard on us, but he would rather see holes in his saints than spots upon them. Let's remember that we must set ourselves in the promises and the Word of God that we might not misuse, mistrust what God is doing in our midst, that we would also be after in everything the mind of Christ, that we would follow him with the whole heart, the whole soul, 
the whole mind, that we might love him. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He can't deny himself, as Paul says to Timothy. So let us take a lesson for Abraham and not mimic such a man who deceived and schemed to save his own life and his own skin. But let us instead trust in Christ. Let's pray. Mighty Lord and Everlasting One, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for showering us with your grace. That you don't deal according to our sin, but you deal with us according to the grace that we have in Christ. And you comfort us, even though we are liars and cheaters and schemers and covetous and all of these things. We ask, O God, that you would please sanctify us further. We commit ourselves to you, O Lord. We want to be sanctified. We want to be changed. We want to be made whole. We want to be made perfect servants. We want to pray and see the prayer come to fruition that as your will is done in heaven, so let it be done on earth by us. The saints in heaven and the angels in heaven do your will perfectly. We ask, O oh God, that we are imperfect, yet we so desire to be holy. We so desire to follow you with all of our heart. Help us to do it by the power of your spirit. And we so, as Christ said, ask that you would receive the spirit we ask. Please give us more of your spirit. Help us to walk under his influence in every way and bind us up that we might glorify you in these bodies. We so thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his blood. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship, 
in which they absurdly exercise themselves, would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.